0: Gracious God, I pray now that as my words line up with your words, that they would fall on ears and hearts ready to receive them and respond. You got any words that uh, aren't from you? I pray that they would quickly be forgotten. Help us to pay attention to you this morning. I pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the priests here at Truro. As always, it is a pleasure and a privilege to preach. This is the last time I'll preach before leaving for an eight-week sabbatical, starting in eight days, but who's counting? (laughs) I'll be here next Sunday and then taking some time off with my family, which we are very grateful for. Today, the first Sunday after Pentecost is Trinity Sunday. It's why we saying holy, holy, holy. It's why there was such a mouthful in our opening prayer, um, because it's pointing us to the Trinity, the Triune God. And so our texts this morning give us glimpses of the Trinity in Scripture. We do still have one more reading for this morning, which I'll read for us in just a second. I'd love to invite you, if you have a Bible, to open it to Revelation chapter 4. That's our final reading. If you don't have a Bible, you can find it on page 1313 in your pew Bible. And the Bible's in your pews. Now, my wife, for the last couple of years, has helped lead an early morning Bible study just down the road at Main Street Bagel. On Thursdays, they meet before school and um, she spent some time with high schoolers and they study the Bible together. And, and one of the things that Jenny has started doing, uh, well, for us, is a little bit of sleuth work, a little bit of investigation. You see, as we age, we have realized that we have no idea what the current slang is. <laughs> we knew what it was when we were younger, obviously, but now we have absolutely no idea what it is kids say. And our our oldest is 11, so he's getting to the age where he's starting to pick up bits of slang, and we want to know what the heck he's saying, all right? And so Jenny, she does sleuth work sometimes on Thursday mornings, and these high schoolers have been so kind as to tell her when they remember these new turns of phrases that apparently the kids are saying, all right? One of them, apparently the kids these days sometimes refer to something as mid. Is this true? A couple of you, like that's so mid? Or like that movie was mid? Apparently it means like middle. It's like a decade ago we would have said meh. It's like that. Not great. Not terrible. It's mid. Apparently this is the slang that the kids these days are saying. And it made me think as I read this text in Revelation chapter 4... This is what I found myself asking, found myself wondering, how often we settle for spiritual lives that are just mid. How often we settle for spiritual lives that are just mid. Spiritual lives plagued by apathy or periodic, perhaps even perpetual indifference to God and his kingdom. I certainly have gone through seasons like this, usually brought on by busyness or fatigue or or whatever. Today's text, Revelation 4, offers a specific antidote to this spiritual malady of apathy and indifference. Now, I was inspired by Jamie's Pentecost alliteration last week, as he talked about God's presence and promise and power on Pentecost which God poured out on his people that particular Pentecost day. Did I get that right? Those were the three points, right? Power, presence. I think I just said it. Now I forgot it already. This isn't how it's supposed to work. All right, well, our text today is weird and a bit wacky, but it's also wonderful and a bit wild. And because it's a whopper of a text, I've got three W's to help us handle... This text, as I wax eloquent upon the weighty wealth of wow that we witness. As we look through a window into the throne room of of God. Whew, that is a lot of words. Okay, in all seriousness, thank you, Jamie. In all seriousness, here's where we're going. Three things, and they will all be W's if you didn't get the hint. Three words that are actually three of the primary themes of Revelation and incredibly applicable for us today. Three things that will help us ward off the dangers of indifference, of a spiritual life that's mid, that we see here in Revelation chapter 4. What we see in Revelation chapter 4, rather, is the antidote to spiritual apathy, And we'll come to this antidote by way of three questions, all right, the answers of which will be Ws. First, what is the text trying to make us feel? What is the text trying to make us feel? Second, what the text encourages us to do. What the text encourages us to do. And lastly, where this text wants us to look. Where the text wants us to look. Now, before we read it, a brief word about Revelation. It's tempting to approach Revelation as merely a puzzle, to figure out, or a problem to solve. And it is true that just about everything in Revelation is symbolic, and all of that is absolutely 100% worth exploring. But let's not miss the forest for the trees, as the saying goes. Eugene Peterson once wrote, Scripture is not the answer book to all of our problems, but a doorway into the world of God's mystery." Revelation 4 is supposed to draw us up through a doorway into the world of God's mystery, into a world of wonder and imagination and delight, a world that is weird and wonderful and a bit overwhelming. Victor Hugo, when describing the character of the bishop in his famous novel Les Mis, wrote that the bishop did not study God. He was dazzled by him. It's not to say it's not good to study God, it is. But I think Revelation 4 perhaps wants us to be dazzled. So as I read Revelation 4, I'm gonna ask you to keep your Bibles open in your laps, but to close your eyes and use your imagination a bit as we're whisked with John into the throne room of God. Don't try to handle it or analyze it or study it just yet. But let yourself be dazzled. Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. The third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They existed and were created. The word of the Lord. Thanks. This image is, I believe, supposed to dazzle us. It's supposed to dazzle us. We're whisked away with John to the throne room of heaven. There are fantastical creatures, thunder and lightning, and God Himself on a throne, resplendent with jasper, carnelian, emerald, surrounded by worshipers in a sea of glass. We're supposed to, I believe, be filled with a sense of wonder. Be filled with a sense of wonder. That's what this text wants us to feel. We're pulled into the vastness of God's world, the wildness of it, the foreignness of it. It makes me think of a line from the 1999 retelling of The Taming of the True, starring Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles, 10 Things I Hate About You. Great movie, by the way, if you like turn of the century teen chick flicks, which I do. In this movie, one of the main characters, Bianca, who's supposed to be a bit ditzy, asks her friend, I know you can be overwhelmed and you can be underwhelmed, but can you just be whelmed? Her friend replies, I think you can in Europe. It's meant to be a joke. But I think far too often, we are just whelmed by God. We're just whelmed by God. It's enough of a reality and a problem that we have books like Your God is Too Small by J.B. Phillips, Your God is Too Safe by Mark Buchanan. It's why the line in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe that perhaps is quoted more than any other is when Mr. Beaver turns to the children and says, Aslan, no, he's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. In fact, it seems like the primary motivation of much of Christianity's art, great art, be it music, architecture, painting, is to instill in us again a sense of wonder when it comes to God and his world. A wonderful symphony walk into the doors of a cathedral in Europe, wow, a sense of wonder. I think it's why so many of us as adults, when we're feeling like our spiritual life is a bit mid, find ourselves retreating to the mountains or yearning for a sunset. Nature inspires wonder in us again. The sense of wonder comes naturally to us as children, but somewhere along the way, We become mechanical or clinical or cynical or just too busy to be dazzled by God. We become indifferent or apathetic, just sort of whelmed by God at best. No wonder our spiritual lives can feel mid. The text wants us to feel again or for the first time or the first time in a long time, a sense of wonder when it comes to God and His work and His world, to be awestruck, dazzled, overwhelmed, even. It wants to help us reclaim a holy imagination to let ourselves feel and to slow down enough to do so. And when we find ourselves captured again by wonder when it comes to God, it puts the troubles of the present in perspective, even as it moves us away from spiritual apathy. So first, text wants us to feel a sense of wonder, a sense of wonder. Second, what does this text encourage us to do? Well, it encourages us to worship. It encourages us to worship. Worship is the natural response to wonder. It's the response of all the creatures who gather around the throne in our text today in verse 8 We have four living creatures, each of whom have six wings, eyes full, around, within, day and night. They never cease to worship, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These words should sound familiar to us. Not only did we just sing them, but we say them or sing them every week in our communion liturgy. As we join our voices with angels and with archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name, worship is the proper response to God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Worship goes hand in hand with wonder. Wonder inspires worship. And sometimes when we're struggling to get outside of ourselves, just singing, joining the company of heaven, can help us to wonder again. I know it does for me. Worship puts us in our place. It reminds us how big and good and wonderful God is. And it reminds us both how small we are, and yet how deeply loved and significant we are at the same time. Worship puts our problems in perspective that puts our place in perspective. And frankly, in a world where people worship everything or everyone but the one who is worthy of worship, worship is an act of defiance. Where most everyone around us clings to paltry little crowns, Revelation 4 invites us to join the elders in casting our treasure at the foot of the throne of God. That's what happens right here. In verse 10, the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne of God in an act of worship, acknowledging that our places of prominence in this world our material wealth, that it's all a gift from God. It belongs to God. They give back to him that which rightfully belongs to him. And this, for the elders, is an act of worship. It's one of the reasons why in our own Anglican liturgy, the offertory, when we offer back to God both our very selves and our tithes and money, goes hand in hand with the doxology, an offering of praise. It all goes together as we're drawn out of our seemingly small and insignificant existences into the vastness and wonder of God's story. Worship does that, and in doing so, ascribes to God the worth that is due him. Worship, like wonder, moves us out of spiritual indifference even as it helps us cling to God, giving him his due despite the trials of this world. It gives perspective to life's hardship and helps us fix our eyes on the one, the only one who can solve life's problems anyway, just as worship pushes us out of our apathy. And so we join in with the elders in the creation song of verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. First, this text wants us to feel a sense of wonder. Second, it wants us to do something. It wants us to worship. And lastly, the text wants us to look somewhere. It wants us to look to the one who is worthy. It wants us to look to the one who is worthy? Verse 11 tells us this Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. But chapter four is just the prelude. It's really just a prelude, it's setting the scene, it's an introduction to the great drama of God's unfolding plan revealed in Revelation, a drama that really gets moving in chapter five. The Spirit transports John and us by way of this book into the throne room in chapter 4. We're drawn into this world of wonder and worship, but it's a setup. It's a setup. The voice that brings John to the throne room wants him to look somewhere very specific, to see a particular thing. And just as we're supposed to be overwhelmed with wonder and drawn into worship by the scene, we along with John are supposed to zoom in on one spot. We're supposed to zoom in on the one on whom all our hopes and dreams are to rest, to zoom in on the one who is worthy. Listen now to the word of God. This is chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Revelation 4 wants us to zoom in on the one who is worthy the one who we see in Revelation 5, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, the one whose blood has ransomed people for God from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. This is where Revelation 4 wants us to look to Revelation 5. It's where all of Scripture wants us to look to Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. Revelation 4 sets the scene, inviting us to wonder again to delight, to be dazzled. It invites us to worship so when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we witness the one who is worthy, we might be even more dazzled, filled with awe and with wonder, compelled like all of creation, everything on earth and under the earth, to join in and worship, to praise the one who would save us by taking on the very nature of a servant being found in human likeness, the one who would die on a cross that we might be ransomed for God, the one that would win by losing, who would bring life by way of death, the one who was crucified and rose from the dead. Friends, far too often we are just whelmed by this reality and then we wonder why our spiritual life feels so mid we're distracted we're smitten by that which is small we cling to our sad little crowns where we fix our eyes on the hardships of life letting life's trials dominate and monopolize our vision crowding God out But this text, really, all of the Bible itself, it invites us into something far bigger and grander. It invites us into a life of wonder again. It compels us to worship. And it urges us again to fix our eyes on the one who is worthy. To fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, it invites us to behold him, to witness the one who is worthy, the one who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The one who is worthy of our wonder and worthy of our worship, the one to whom we then bear witness in response, our only hope in life and death the one who was and is and is to come, may his name be praised. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of our worship. He's the one who draws all of our wonder and our delight up into, his, up into himself. Friends, far too easily we become indifferent to the things of God. And when we do, there's an invitation here in Revelation to be dazzled by Jesus again, to be filled with wonder at who he is and what he's done and what he promises he will do. There's an invitation to worship him, to fix our eyes and our imaginations and our hopes I'm on the only one who is worthy, the Lamb who was slain. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive." Will you stand and pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for this vision you gave John and this vision you've given us. This invitation to once again be dazzled by you. And so I pray, come Holy Spirit. Do your work in our hearts that we might be filled with wonder again. Compel us to wholeheartedly worship you, casting our thr- our crowns before you. And I pray, gracious God, that by your spirit you would fix our eyes on the only one who is worthy of our worship. And it's in his name that we fix our hopes, and in his name that we pray. Amen.